If you could have much, much higher quality pickles and have the delivered cost of those things, accounting for your own time, driving, standing in line, paying, driving back, if the net cost of those things is going to come down so much that we may see a revolution in huge numbers of jobs that we can't even imagine. New services like Airbnb and Lyft do something that is very simple, but very powerful. We've always had hotels and taxi services. It's not like Uber invented the idea of the taxi. What these companies create is a platform for people to provide these products, like a ride or a stay in a city, and a platform for people to easily find and access them. Oftentimes, the result is a more efficient and better outcome for both the provider and the receiver of the service. But why should this sharing revolution be confined to only Uber and Airbnb? What will the future of the sharing economy look like? And what will this mean for employees? Will pay go down? Will people lose their jobs? Should we be concerned about the long-term effects of new platforms? You're listening to the third episode of Audible Ethics, a podcast from Duke University's Keenan Institute for Ethics that takes on interesting topics and asks relevant questions. I'm David Willover Sanchez. And before we start, the views expressed are those of the speakers. This is a two-part episode. We're going to start by exploring the sharing economy. Later, we'll look at some of the potential problems and one idea about how to address it. To walk through these complicated questions, I sat down with Professor Mike Munger. My name is Mike Munger. I'm a professor of economics, political science, and public policy at Duke University, and I'm the director of the PPE program, which is an interdisciplinary undergraduate certificate program. We started by learning about what the sharing economy is and what some of its implications might be. Sharing economy is actually the connection between two very different phenomena. One is the ability, for the first time in human history, for entrepreneurs to sell reductions in transactions cost. Until now, entrepreneurs have always tried to sell products, and trying to sell transactions cost was just a way of motivating that. But now, using uh, portable computers that we think of as smartphones, connected over the internet and running pieces of software that we call apps, you can sell reductions in transactions costs, which means that you can just facilitate the exchange between someone who has something and someone else who wants it who wouldn't otherwise have met. The second factor that the sharing economy is motivated by, is animated by, is excess capacity. We have so much stuff. We have stuff in closets. I have several cars at my house. I store them in a garage or we store them in parking spaces. In cities, there's big parking spaces everywhere that take up streets and garages and spaces that we could use for something else. We have excess capacity in almost everything. We have too much stuff and a lot of it's in the wrong place. So when you combine the fact that we have too much stuff with the ability to sell transactions costs that will allow us to make better use of the stuff, there's gonna be a revolution. Everyone, or almost everyone knows the two canonical examples, the first, being Uber and the second, Airbnb. So Uber is, if I have a car in a few minutes and you need a ride, we have a mutually beneficial transaction. But in the absence of some way of solving the problems of transactions costs, we'll never get together. And the, the, we can divide the problem of transactions cost into three parts. Triangulation, transfer, and trust. Triangulation is that we have to find each other. We have to know the location and something about the time when you'd like the service to be delivered. 
Transfer means that we actually have to provide the service and get paid for it, and trust means that we know we're not going to rob each other and the thing that's being provided is actually real. When you put those three things together, then we solve a problem. But I have a BMW 330, it's black, it's a six-speed transmission, I'm just the sort of asshat you think I am. I, I speed around in traffic, and if I pull up beside a young woman who's walking and roll down my window and say, hey, you want to ride? Well, the police get called, but in fact, there probably is some mutually beneficial transaction that could take place if it wasn't so creepy, but it's creepy. So what the app called Uber can do is take the creepy out. It can tell me where you are, where you want to go. It can negotiate a price. It can affect the payment and take the creepy out. So if you, if you understand all those three things, Uber for cars, Airbnb for apartments or rooms, Spin Lister for bikes, golf clubs, ski equipment, all of those things we don't use. And sometimes they're sitting idle. In fact, in some cases, most of the time they're sitting idle. So reduction in transactions cost in economic terms actually commodifies that excess capacity in a way where it can be bought and sold. Is there a revolution in the works? It seems like a compelling case. If we envision a future where everything is reasonably accessible through an app like Airbnb, that seems like a good thing that creates new opportunities in both directions. And if we take this a step further, maybe this means that if the sharing economy keeps progressing, maybe we'll actually own less stuff. Is that a possibility? The interesting point about transactions cost is that there's a famous economist, Ronald Coase, who in 1937 published a paper in Economica, the title of which was The Nature of the Firm, and he asked a great question. Economists always celebrate and sometimes seem almost to worship the price system because the price system tells goods and services where to go. It seems to direct the activities of human beings in a complicated setting. Well, if prices are so great, why are there firms? His answer was transactions cost. There's a lot of things that would be too expensive to negotiate a new price for, for example, every step along a production line. Well, I think if Ronald Coase were writing today instead of 1937, he wouldn't ask about the division between firms and markets. He would ask about the division between renting and owning. We will own a great deal less stuff if we can rent it reliably. The only reason I own anything, when you think about it, is to ensure that I have convenient access to it when I want. But if it's much easier to rent than it is now, having to pay for storage is actually quite wasteful. And this is an important point. Paying for storage is wasteful twice. First, the storage space itself is used. That means that I could be using it for something else, so it's wasteful. And any money that I spend to store it is wasted. But the thing itself could usually also be used at the same time. So the opportunity cost of the thing and the opportunity cost of the time and space being used to store the thing are both wasted. So what's available is let's sell both of those. Let's use the storage space for something else. And the particular thing, if I could rent rather than own, do it reliably and at low cost, I will own far less. Owning less stuff, that doesn't sound so bad. Why should everyone own a drill or a lawnmower or a car even if it can be cheaply rented below the cost of ownership? Part of me is skeptical though. People really enjoy owning their own stuff, things like cars especially. Even if it might be more rational to rent, it seems like there's something in our nature that might prevent us from being willing to not own stuff. And maybe that's a problem. 
could materialism be something that's standing in the way of this model? You're listening to Audible Ethics, a new podcast from the Keenan Institute for Ethics that takes on interesting topics and asks relevant questions. I'm David Wolliver Sanchez. So the sharing economy is here in a few places for sure already. Lyft, Uber, Airbnb, and many others. How far can this revolution extend? Okay, so I think some people might be a little bit skeptical. So like we have Airbnb and Uber and similar services, but might be skeptical that more basic things could could get to that level. Um, so how far do you think it can like plausibly extend? I have two responses to that. First, I'm an economist, and economists are really good at predicting the past. <laughs> the immediate past is our specialty, like yesterday. So economists are generically terrible at predicting what's going to happen. The people that are more useful to talk to are entrepreneurs, people who think, you know, I've thought of a way to do this. And so a lot of people ask me, well, how's it going to happen? I don't know. I'm an economist. I can only predict the past. I do know that several venture capitalists, when they first heard the idea of Airbnb, said that can never work. Nobody is going to let somebody else stay in their apartment or stay in someone else's or both sides of that transaction. There's no way that it can work. I think it's because it's old people like me that young people like you are asking. If you ask other young people, they'll say, well, of course, there's other ways that it can work. And the reason is old people like me are used to reputation and people that I know. If I'm in a city, I don't know anything about the city and I want to find a restaurant. I ask the concierge at the hotel who is probably bribed or his cousin owns a restaurant. It's completely unreliable. That's what I do because I want to talk to somebody. Young people use Yelp. And in fact, you wouldn't think of doing anything else. And what Yelp does is give you the opinions of people you've never met and never will. But it does give you two nice pieces of information. One, what is the average rating? And second, what are the bad ratings? What do the bad ratings say? Nobody looks at the good ratings on Yelp because those are probably fake. But the overall average and the worst ratings, those tell you something. So we can solve this problem all over the place if we can move along those three dimensions that I talked about before, which is triangulation, transfer, and trust. So let me give you an example. In Europe, I've given a version of this talk a number of times in Central Europe, and there's a thing called blah blah car. And blah blah car is hitchhiking. So when you think about it, if you go out to the interstate highway and you stand on a bridge and the police don't stop you because they're worried about you throwing rocks. But so you, you stand on the bridge and you watch the cars and trucks below. Very few of them are full. And particularly the long haul trucks, there's almost always one person. There may be one or two or three seats that are empty. Well, you would never think of trying to flag the trucker down in hitchhiking because hitchhiking is even creepier than trying to get a ride with someone. But suppose that you could solve those three problems, triangulation, transfer, and trust. Well, what Blah Blah Car does is give you four pieces of information. Where are you now? Where do you want to go? What time do you want to go? And how much do you want to talk? The great part is, how much do you want to talk? So suppose that I'm in Brno and I want to go to Prague in the Czech Republic. I want to do it tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And I don't really like to talk, but I don't mind. And so I would pick the middle level. The three levels are blah, which means I'm very quiet. Blah, blah, which the software says enjoys a natter. And the third is can't shut up, rarely pauses even for breath. So you can pick someone who's going from where you want to where you want, when you want, and have a conversational partner that's at least partly matched to what you want. And you can do it for 10 euros instead of 100. So that's, gonna, that's going to be very strong competition to trains and buses, and young people are going to use it. 
because you're already used to trusting software. So I think the sky's the limit. All sorts of things that if, so if I ask an American audience, how many of you hitchhike? None of them do. But the only reason that they don't is transactions costs. I wonder, you sort of alluded to this, but I wonder if there is like a generational divide there to an extent. I remember the first time, so I was uh, studying abroad over the summer um, and me and a group of friends used Airbnb for all of our locations. And it was like a third of the cost, maybe more um, than a hotel and like better locations. And like you talk, you know, you have a host there who like tells you where the good places to go are. In a kitchen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was all ch- cheaper. But um, when I introduced the idea to my, to my parents, at first they were very skeptical. So they were like, oh, this is a stranger in the middle of Europe, who knows? But th- the reality is that it's pretty self-regulated. Um, and then I'm sure there are areas where there can be like safety standards. But it, for the most part, like ratings and reviews do a good job of of keeping it safe. No, they, they don't do a good job, but they do at least as good a job as the ratings and reviews you have of a youth hostel or some crappy hotel sure. in some central European city. You don't know anything about those either. And the same thing in a way applies to Uber. So I think your example is an excellent, excellent one. It's partly generational, where old people are just not used to trusting it. But I also think many of us have the idea that something that's institutionalized, like a hotel or taxi service, there's more protection than there actually is. So an Uber driver or an Airbnb provider, they have their ID, they have their financial information. You actually know a great deal about them. What do you know about a taxi driver in Bulgaria? Nothing. Whereas Uber, there is actually some recourse. So if you're traveling abroad, I would say that Uber is often a far better choice. Now, whenever I'm in Australia, South America, I try to use Uber. It's cheaper, it's faster, and I usually don't have to speak in English because the driver already has the direction. Some of the possibilities of the sharing economy are definitely exciting. But that doesn't mean we don't have any reason to worry. First off, it's become clear that, for example, Uber doesn't exactly hold itself to the highest ethical standards. There's plenty of concerns surrounding the treatment of women, the compensation of drivers, and other business ethics questions. And our sharing economy concerns definitely can go beyond individual companies. The whole premise of the sharing economy, that of renting things that you don't constantly need, might mean that we won't own less stuff, we'll actually need less stuff. At first glance, that seems attractive. But what about people who make things? people whose livelihoods depends on jobs that could lose ground to renting and automation. What does that mean for our collective futures? Are there any dangers here? Well, I think the the right place to start is the bleak picture because Mm -hmm. there's a decent chance that it will happen. If I'm right and we are going to rent far more than own, it also means that the things that we rent will probably be more durable. So an example that I often use is, suppose I need to put up a picture in my house and to do that I need to drill two holes. Well, I, like most people, most old people, have a drill. There's more than 100 million power drills in the United States. It turns out that the median lifetime use, and that's lifetime, total use of a power drill, is 30 minutes. 30 minutes is a long time to run a drill. Yeah. So, you know, you run it for a few seconds and you put it away and you run it for a few seconds. So 30 minutes is actually a pretty long time, but it's not very long in the life of a drill. So what we buy is these inferior quality drills. And if you drive down the street, you, you if you had an x-ray, a drill specific x-ray, drill, 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 everybody has one, no one's using it. Suppose instead I could pull out my phone and fire up Uber 
and I scroll to the place that says power tools and then I scroll to the place that says drills and I pick rent. Price is already negotiated. The particular kind of drill that I'm going to use, I've already put into the software because the software is added a questionnaire when I, when I signed up. An Uber driver somewhere goes by a hardware store and picks up the drill. Now, the Uber driver doesn't know where I live, but the software does. And so the Uber driver just follows a path that actually satisfies the conditions of what mathematicians call the traveling salesman problem, where you minimize the total amount of distance that you have to travel to have a certain number of nodes or stops. At some point, it doesn't take very long, my phone buzzes because the smart pod in front, which locks and only I can unlock it, has my drill. I go out, pick up the drill, I drill the holes, I put it back. The pod is smart. It tells another Uber driver to pick it up and take it back. So that cost me $2 to rent the drill because the drill is used 30 or 40 times a day. The intensity of use is so high. But at end, it's a $300 commercial quality drill. It's built for doing this. We'll need, we only need about six or eight million drills, not 100. Well, if we have six or eight million commercial quality drills, the people who've made drills are not going to make drills anymore. And the people who make coffee makers and sausage makers and cars and all the things that until now everybody... And lawnmowers. It's amazing. Everybody has a lawnmower. That makes no sense. You use it for half an hour, 45 minutes, once every 10 days. And then none during the winter. And yet you store it. So much space is taken up with all of these things that we barely ever use. If we could rent them rather than own them, the downside is, in answer to your question, means that we'll need far fewer of them, maybe only 10%, which means that many of the people who now make things will be unemployed. And many of the people who now provide services, Mark Andreessen in November 2011 wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal entitled, Software Eats the World. And what he meant by that is that software takes over all kinds of service jobs. So service jobs are eaten up by software the same way that production jobs are eaten up by automation and robotics. So we've lost a bunch of jobs to automation. We're going to lose a bunch more to software. So there's two factors here, and this is an economistic answer, I admit. But remember, I told you before, we can't predict anything. So the answer to your question is it depends. Wages are going to fall dramatically. Prices are going to fall dramatically because renting rather than owning is much more efficient and the efficiencies are going to take a while to work their way through the economy. We'll need less storage space, houses will be smaller, cities are going to grow just because all the parking spaces and the things that are now taken up with cars can be used for something else. So much more efficient use. The price of living in a city is going to fall dramatically. If prices fall and wage falls, what, what are the net effects? Well, economists, not surprisingly, have a name for this. They're interested in what they call real wages. Real wages are the nominal wage divided by the price level. I think that for most people, for many people, the real wage is actually going to go up because wages are going to fall, but prices are going to fall by more. The bleak picture is that for a lot of people, the real wage is going to fall to zero. It doesn't matter how cheap stuff is if you don't have any income. And that means that we need something to take care of there's two considerations. One is this economy is inexorable. It is inevitable. It's going to happen. This revolution is going to happen. It's unstoppable. Its effects are mostly positive. It's beneficial to the environment that each of us will have a smaller footprint. It's benefit to, benefit to the people whose real wages are going to go up.
Many people are going to have real wages that fall through no fault of their own. In good faith, they said, I'm going to participate in the system. They got an education and the skill that they got from that education and the experience of working for 10 years is worthless now. We want them to have some stake in this rather than try to hold it back. So I would say in normative terms, you could argue that the gains to the gainers are so large that we can compensate the losers and still be better off. And by losers, all I mean is people who through no fault of their own are subjected to substantial displacement in their lives and the sort of cultural environment they live in. The second argument then is to avoid political opposition. So adopting something like my personal favorite is basic income, but some sort of social safety net as a way of preventing large-scale revolution, social displacement, and whether you think the political argument or the normative argument is more persuasive, they both cut the same way. So I think the, the, the most pessimistic view is we're going to need substantial social safety net to prevent revolution and a generation of people who don't know how to program, they don't really have access to the means of participating in this revolution. I don't think we necessarily need to be that pessimistic. Right now, in Brooklyn, in New York, there are bearded young men and women making boutique pickles that are, you know, bourbon, maple, cayenne pickles. And a small jar with only four cut up cucumbers costs 12 or $14. And I can live anywhere in the New York area and I go online and I order these things and they're delivered to me by Uber. And Uber doesn't make that one trip to deliver. There's a bunch of things. Uber is set up to deliver stuff. Now, I'm really old, I admit, but when I was growing up, cheese, milk, some vegetables were delivered to our house. That disappeared. We adopted what I think future generations are going to think of as a bizarre habit of we get into our garage, the special place where we store this car we hardly ever use. We drive three or four miles to a large supermarket that has a gigantic storage space for cars called a parking lot. We walk inside, we walk around with a shopping cart and put all this stuff into the shopping cart, stand in long lines for the chance to pay for it, get back in the car and drive three or four miles home. It takes an hour to do that. That makes no sense. It should be delivered. Well, the more optimistic view then is that these bearded young men and women will be able to make all sorts of things. We'll have a renaissance in local, high-quality designer foods that we can make quite a bit of money from selling. And that means that people may have artisanal livelihoods. So the, the, the mass production revolution reduced price. But if we can reduce transactions cost, we can have higher prices and still be better off because the cost of delivering those mass-produced pickles, which frankly aren't very good down at the food line, they're okay, yeah. but they're not that great. If you could have much, much higher quality pickles and have the delivered cost of those things, accounting for your own time, driving, standing in line, paying, driving back, if the net cost of those things is gonna come down so much that we may see a revolution in huge numbers of jobs that we can't even imagine. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and listen to the next ones. Then, if you're willing, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That way, other people can discover us more easily. Find and share us on Facebook or Twitter and send comments, questions, or ideas to keenanpodcast at gmail.com. Quick shout out, I wanted to thank you all for getting us to over 950 downloads so far. 
Audible Ethics is a product of Team Keenan at the Keenan Institute for Ethics. I'd like to thank Professor Mike Munger for sitting down with me for this episode. Be sure to listen to his appearances on Econ Talk and Planet Money. I'd also like to thank the student team at Team Keenan and the staff that makes it all possible. Music came from Podcast Safe Musical Selections under the Creative Commons licensing. I'd like to thank the following artists for making their work available. Broke for Free and Chris Zabriskie. This episode was written, edited, and produced by myself and was edited on Adobe Audition from the Creative Cloud provided by Duke University. My name is David Wolliver Sanchez. Thanks for listening and see you next time.